And for those of you who are new to it today, this has been a series where we've been going through Genesis to Revelation, obviously, like I said, and we've been hitting some of the high points, and of course the high points are not always what you might pick, They're, some of them are what I pick, you know, my high points. So we've, we've been doing it, and you'll get the paper, it's a cross, or it's like a tic-tac-toe board, so if you don't want to draw along, you can play along with your person sitting next to you if they're willing to play tic-tac-toe with you. And if they are, then I want names of the people who are playing tic-tac-toe. But anyway, it, it's this, and, and we're going to go through from you know left to right, and we're going to talk about one book, one book, and I usually draw one picture that kind of helps me immediately recognize what I think the overall theme of that book is. And then from there, you kind of break down that book, and you can break it down any way you want to, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point out... Some things from 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 3 Johns, and Jude, and Revelation this morning. And then wrap it up. And I hope you've gotten something out of this series. If nothing else, I hope maybe you see a way to, if you've been saving the papers, see a way to go from Genesis to Revelation in sort of an overview and say, this is kind of what this is like, this is like, this is like, and give a big, big picture of God's Word. So, we're going to start off with 1 Peter. And the picture that I'm going to use for 1 Peter for me is this. Now this is not exactly what you see on cars, but have you seen these these bumper stickers with these stick figure families on cars? Right? Am I getting better? Thank you. Thanks so much, Darren. <laughs> I love you too. There's my first Peter uh, picture. Because one of the big pictures in First Peter for me is new family. There's a new identity that you have in Christ. And when you're a new person in Christ, you have a new family. And Peter says this is a new family. And he, and he describes this new family in some very interesting ways. And he uses some Old Testament examples for New Testament people. And if you want to kind of look at what I'm going to point out here, go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Because there is, 1 Peter 1 to about 1 Peter 2, there's several examples that where he goes from new to old in that, in that one book where he's saying, you're part of this new family and you have a new family identity and that's where it starts off for me in First Peter, this new family identity. And he says, in this new family, you've gone through a new exodus. In chapter 1, 17 through 21, he kind of talks about a new exodus. Like the old exodus coming out of Israel, you've come out of something too. You've come out of slavery, bondage. You've come out of sin. And that new Passover as well in, in uh, 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21. And let me read just that part for you because I'm not going to read the rest. But here's, here's the new uh, coming out. Here's the new exodus for a Christian. And if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay upon the earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him 
are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now there's a Christian's exodus. He's brought you out of that, that land of Egypt, that bondage, that sin. And there's your Passover too. He is the Passover lamb that is, that is sacrificed for you. So Peter describes this new family identity in an Old Testament way and sort of connects the two. You know, this is the Old Testament, this is the New Testament, but we are one family. In 22 through 25 of that same chapter, he talks about a new covenant. Then he talks about a new temple in 2, 1 through 8. And then he talks about these new kingdom of priests in 2, 9 through 11. So he's definitely looking at this new family in Christ. But he's also talking about where that new family has its roots. And you have your roots way back here in the Old Testament. You've got your roots in a family that goes way back. And you've got your roots in a plan that goes way back before the foundation of the world. Part of this family. And what that new family frame does is it frames the actual rest of the book. The entire book is framed on what he says there from 1 Peter 1 to 1 Peter 2, about 9 through 11. The rest of it hinges on all of this because he's saying this is a new family, but this new family is going to do what? He's going to, you're going to endure some suffering. You're going to go through some pain and suffering because you're a part of this family. And in 2, 13 through 17, he talks about suffering as a witness for Jesus here. 2.18 through 3.7, he talks about these wives and slaves and their suffering here. And he talks about the response to that problem here. What, what, how do you address that problem when you've got wives and you've got slaves and you've got all these things happening and you've got suffering happening? How do you address that problem? He addresses that in that book, which we won't be able to do this morning, but look at how he addresses that in that chapter. He ends there in chapter 4.12 through the end of that book talking about suffering, but he also says... Because of your suffering, there's going to be future hope. And that's a good note to end on, isn't it? Because if he's going to say, hey, you're going to belong to this new family, and this new family is going to endure a lot of suffering because of whose you are, I think you should probably end on something like, well, there's hope. There's some hope here, because it's not just about the suffering that you're going to endure. In fact, that suffering is going to have a point. It's going to have a reason. In that very first chapter, he points out that reason for that suffering. That's part of the, the big thoughts that I have about 1 Peter. I'm gonna, I've got two big thoughts here for me. One is, it's a powerful reminder that there's hope in the midst of suffering. This book is full of those reminders. You may be suffering for the cause of Christ. and In fact, you should be suffering for the cause of Christ. In fact, he calls you to suffer for him. He says, you should be suffering this way. But if you are... There's a reason for it. There's hope in it. And it's not just going to just break you down completely. It's not like suffering here on the earth because you've been a bad person, because you've broken laws. It's suffering because you are a part of Christ. God's people have and always will be misunderstood by the world. I think that is absolutely true. God's people will always be misunderstood by the world and always have been misunderstood by the world because the world doesn't understand God's plan. It doesn't understand God's ways. And so when they see us... They see a bunch of people that they can't completely understand because they don't understand God. Amen. And so the suffering comes because, boy, we're a persecuted minority here on the earth. But that persecuted minority doesn't act like a persecuted minority. We act like victorious people because we're in Christ. The second thing is that persecution is that strange and wonderful gift, or suffering is that strange and wonderful gift. Either one, persecution or suffering, is a strange and wonderful gift because what does it do? Go ahead and erase that for me, Ty. Thank you. It refines us like that fire that he talks about. 
it cleans us of, all that, of that dross. It gets us perfected. Really, it's, it's that suffering that makes us more like Christ. So First Peter, pointing to this new family, you've got a new family in Christ, but you've got roots going way back here. But this new family is going to suffer. This new family is going to hurt. But that hurting, that suffering, that persecution, it has hope. It has purpose because you're in Christ. There's First Peter for me. Just a big swath of First Peter. Obviously, you could get so far into each and every book, each and every chapter, each and every verse. But then you go to Second Peter. And in Second Peter, he's writing to the same audience here. <clears throat> And you see here, I've been trying to figure out how to communicate this one, but I'm going to do it this way. Whatever. Yeah. Is that good, Darren? It's good. Okay. All right. Is that the best you can do? <laughs> <laughs> I love you guys. This, for me, is, is, is Peter's last will and testament. This is his, 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 his final words to a church. This is where Peter gets down and he says, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be around for very much longer. My time on earth is, is, is low. Excellent. <laughs> My time on earth is, is, is at hand. I, I, I'm coming to the end. And so Peter is saying, these are my last words, and I want to leave you with something important. I want to remind you of some things. I want to challenge you in some things. And that's where Peter starts off in this letter. He starts off with a challenge, and then he answers some objections that are happening at that time. And, and you'll notice that these objections are not anything new to the book of, or the Bible, period. But it kind of has a continuing theme through these last books, these objections that he's going to answer, I think, in this book, echo John, echo Jude, and even, in some ways, echo Revelation. But his final challenge there, he says, you've been allowed to be, you've been given the chance to be participants in this divine nature, right? In that very first chapter, what does he say? He says, Seeing that this divine power has granted to us everything, verse 3, pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So he says, well, you've been given some awesome resources because you've been allowed to become partakers of of this divine nature like us. What an awesome thing. To become a part of the divine. But he says, because of these resources I've given you, you've got a lot of responsibility here. There's resources, but there's also responsibility here. And he goes through and he talks about that responsibility, about for this reason you must do this, apply diligence, faith, all of these things, building up and, and continually supplying all of these things for if these qualities are yours, in verse 8, and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a resource, but there is a responsibility for the Christian to continue in these things, to grow in these things. 
And he challenges them in that, in that very last letter. And he says, I want you to pass these things on. But here's the first objection. The first objection in this letter is, people are saying, you guys made all this stuff up. It's all made up. And Peter says, oh no, it's not. It's not all made up. Look at chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. For we do not follow cleverly devised tales when we, were, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We didn't make this stuff up, he says. But there's, a, there's something going around saying it's, it's a made-up story. It's all made up. And Peter says, no, it's not all made up. We've seen Him with our eyes. That sounds familiar to another letter. We've seen Him with our eyes. We know it's real. That's the first objection. The second objection happens in chapter 2, 1 through 3. And he's talking about corrupt leaders here now. Corrupt leaders have gotten into the church. When won't they? They seem to always get into the church, don't they? Corrupt leaders get into the church, get in and try to take people away. And they say there's not going to be a final judgment. So don't worry about it. There's not going to be a final judgment. So money, sex, no problem. Don't worry about it. There's not going to be a final judgment. But Peter says, yeah, yeah, there will be a final judgment. There will be a a final judgment, so you need to live that way. The corrupt way of life, verses 12 through 22 of chapter 2. Look at the beginning of that. 2 Peter chapter 2, 12 through 22 is the whole thing. He starts off by saying, but these, talking about these false teachers, their character, they're unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling what they have no knowledge will in the destruction of, the, of, the creature, of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes revealing in the, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart turned in greed, accused children, cursed children, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. That's the description of those teachers. That's the second objection. There's teachers creeping in, and they're dragging you away. And with my last words, I'm going to tell you, don't listen to these teachers. The third objection comes in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, where he says, people are saying, well, God's, or Jesus said he's going to come again. When is he coming? He hasn't come yet, so he's not coming. He's not coming at all. Look at verse 1 of 3. Now this, this now, beloved, in the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last day mockers will come with their mockings, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So everything is, is still continuing. Nothing's happening. He's not coming back. So let's not worry about it. Why is God taking so long to fulfill his promises? Why is he doing this? And the teachers are dragging people away. But Peter's writing to remind them that, yeah, people are saying that. But God is patient God wants all men to be saved. God is patient. He's not slow about His promise. He wants everyone. He's going to do what He says He's going to do. And it's going to come like a thief in the night. I think one of my big points for Second Peter is that God loves the world and He's determined to rescue it through Jesus Christ. He loves the world and He's determined to rescue it. He's not going to stop. 
And he has to confront sin and evil. That has to be confronted. You can't live your life. When, he, when Peter starts off that book, he gives you the resources and responsibility. And he says, you can't live your life like this. Because you've got these resources, this responsibility. You need to start a new life. You need to stay strong. Because in God's time, God is going to do what he says he's going to do. Not in your time. Because my time's not God's time. Sometimes I wish my time was God's time. But it's not. Ty, could you erase that for me? So 1 Peter, 2 Peter, his last words. You've got talking about a new family, then Peter's last will and testament, his encouragement to, to the people to stay strong in, in face of these, these teachers that are, that are dragging you away. And then we get, actually I want to do it backwards, to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in your, in your outline, you can do it either way. I'm going to start from 2nd and 3rd and go to 1st because... First is a bigger book. Second and third are pretty tiny in terms of length. Not depth, but in terms of length. The second one, the second John. Oh yeah. This is my, my um, drawing there. Yes, that's the best I can do. That's a house. He's writing it to a house church, basically. He's writing it to a bunch of people in a house church. And he's telling them, be wary because deceivers are going to come. Deceivers are coming into your assembly and I don't want you to help them. Be aware of who they are. Again, this is, this is another reoccurring theme, especially in these last letters about these deceivers, these people who are, who are teaching, corrupt teaching. And he's warning the people there in Second John, they're coming, don't let them in. Don't let them come into your home. Ty, could you erase that? The third letter of John. Keep hitting that, that thing, don't we? Oh, well. Third letter of John. I've got this for my picture. A welcome mat. A welcome mat. Because he's writing the third letter... A third letter of John to a guy named Gaius. And he's telling them, people are coming your way. And I want you to welcome them. I want you to welcome them into your home. And he also mentions this other guy who's part of this church, the Diotrephes, who is an enemy right now. He doesn't like what John is teaching. He doesn't like the teaching of John. Or something is going on between those two. And he is right now an enemy. And he's not going to receive the words that John sends. So he's writing to Gaius, a part of his church. The elder to Gaius here saying, people are coming. I want you to welcome them in. They're, they're true brothers in Christ. Welcome them in. Help them in their work. So in Second, second John, you see people being warned, deceivers are coming. Third John, you see him saying, good people are coming. Welcome them in. And watch out for that brother, Diotrephes, as well. Because he's, he's, he's tracking wrong with, with my gospel. Go ahead and erase that for me. So this is where... You get to First John. First John being a bigger book, there's so many different uh, ways you could break this down. This is my my picture for love, but also for something else.
First uh, John, there's several key things that, that John works around. And it's, a, it's an interesting book because it's not out, laid out so, so logically and so linear. It's, 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 he's, he's working around big pictures and big ideas. Two of the big ideas that jump out at me is love, number one, and light in First John. Love and light. God is love. God is light. And in turn, we are to be the same thing. He talks about walking in the light. He talks about love. In fact, that's the, after the introduction, the first big part here, the clear introduction, 1, 1 through 4, where he says, again, we have seen this with our eyes. Again, there's that, that reiteration of we, ha- we can testify through this that this is actually true, that we have seen him with our eyes, and we're passing this information on to you. Then he says in verse 5 through, what's that? Mess. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. You just threw me off, brother. No, that's okay. I just thought you were saying something important. I didn't want to miss it. <laughs> then he says, this then, is that what you were going? The there you go. This then is the message. So you were saying something important. Okay. one five and 3.11. Look at those chapters. The, the, the This then, or my translation says, and this is the message. And verse 5 is, and this is the message. And 3.11. Do not, oh, not 3.11, I'm sorry. Where, where did I have that in my... 3.10. Oh, man, I just lost it. There, yeah, 3.11, sorry. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning. There's two, this is the message, this is the message. There are two big breaks in that, in that book where he, he rotates around big picture ideas, life, light, and love. And that's that first one in 1.5 through 3.10. Then 3.11 through 5.17 is the second one. Those big pictures. Walking in the light as he is in the light. He says, you're a part of this light. You walk in the light as he is in the light. Then you have fellowship with him. You have fellowship with each other. And the blood of his son cleanses you from all unrighteousness. You can't hate your brother and walk in the light. You can't love the world and walk in the light. And those people who have left the fellowship, again, there's, there's corrupt teaching going on here. He's saying, watch out for those people who deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, deny that Jesus Christ is from the Son of, from God. They are the Antichrist. Now, you ever want to know who the Antichrist is? You don't have to go too far to figure out who the Antichrist is. That's somebody who denies that Jesus Christ came in the flesh right there. That's what he's saying. This is the Antichrist. They're denying Jesus is in the flesh. And there's a lot of Antichrist out there is what he says. Verse three of chapter four: Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not, or every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, and that the spirit of the. I'm going to start back in verse two. By this you will know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is not from God, and the spirit, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and is now already in the world. You are from God, little children. You have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. There's a lot of antichrists in the world, especially at this time. And John is saying, you're from the, from the light. They're, they're denying Jesus Christ came in the flesh. You're either walking in the light or you're walking in darkness. God is love. Don't be like Cain. And in the conclusion of all of this in 5, 18 through 21, I think what he's saying there is, if you know Jesus, then you know God. You know love if you know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know God, you don't know love. I want to share with you, too, my, my outline that I have written down, talking about fellowship, because this is a good book of fellowship. Every single, 
action in there talks about koinonia with each other, koinonia with God, koinonia with Jesus. 1, 5 through 2, 29, he talks about the light of fellowship. God is light, we walk in the light. In chapter 3, 1 through 4, 21, he talks about the love of fellowship. God is love, we walk in love. 5, 1 through 5, 12, he says this is the way to fellowship. We fellowship in God and we walk in that fellowship. And then 13 through 21, he says, this is the certainty of fellowship. You can know that you're in fellowship with God. You can know that you are God's property. So throughout 1 John, there is fellowship, there's koinonia, there's light, there's love, there's life. All of these big picture ideas that John is getting across. But he's also saying, again, with 1 Peter and 2 Peter, there are some teachers out there that want to drag you away. There are some teachers out there that deny these things, that are going to try to rob you of, of what God has given you. Don't let, him, don't let them rob you. Don't let them, them draw you off from what is the truth. So now, go ahead, Ty. We're going to get to the second to last one, Jude. <clears throat> For Jude, it's a small book, isn't it? 25 verses. But it, yeah, it's very, very powerful. And very interesting. Sometimes we have to, we'll have to go through this together and look at, at this in depth. But this is the picture for me, for Jude. Let's see. I'll just put number there. Anybody know what that is? Did you say wrestling? Yeah. Wrestling wrestling suit. Wrestling suit. Yep. Or my version of wrestling suit. Because when, when Jude opens up with this book, that's one of the big ideas there. You're going to contend for the faith. Which literally means you're going to wrestle for the faith. You're going to wrestle this thing. The, this faith that was delivered once for all to the saints. No new revelation this is what you contend for. This is what you wrestle for. This is, this is what you, you, you root yourself in, this faith. And in Jude, he gives a whole bunch of examples. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you how I break it down, or at least tell you how I break it down here. Um, 5 through 10, verses 5 through 10, he looks again at the Old Testament. And he looks at rebellious people in the Old Testament. He looks at the Israelites. He looks at angels. He looks at Sodom. And then he says... For a bonus, I'll throw in how Mo- Moses was treated. How Mo- this, this, this story about how Moses was treated and how uh, the Michael the Archangel says, the Lord rebuke you there. This, these, these, these people are forsaking God's authority. They're practicing sexual immorality. They're rejecting God's message. These rebellious people are echoed in 11 through 13, where he gives you more Old Testament examples. But now he says, these rebellious people also bring other people along with them. They take them with them. And this, again, is echoing that same thought about these teachers coming in and rooting themselves among you and drawing you away. These are rebellious people who corrupt others. Cain is one example he uses. Balaam is another example he uses. Korah, another example. All of those drag people away. Cain's legacy and all of those things and his, the people that he founded. All of those things. The Old Testament example and the images of those is that selfish shepherds there, the clouds, and the chaotic waves that he refers to. 
But he also goes into some warnings there in 14 through 16, and he gives you again this, this double warning. He says, look at this old warning and look at this new warning. 14 through 16, he gives you an ancient warning, talking about Enoch, the seventh generation there, and all of those things. But then in the new warning, he says, these apostles, these people here who have been here with you, Verse 17, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were saying to you, in, these la- in the last time there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of spirit. Again, warning of these, these corrupt teachers that are coming in. But again, using Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament, new examples. Drawing us back into the beginning and back to now. And here the conclusion of all of that is... because when he starts off saying, I want you to wrestle for the faith, he doesn't tell you how to wrestle for the faith right off. He says, okay, I want you to contend for the faith, and then he goes right into why you should do that, because here's warnings. Here's the the rebellious people. Here's the rebellious people that draw people away, and here's some warnings. But then at the end of the letter, he says, okay, now I've told you why you should do it. Now I'm going to tell you how you contend for the faith. Look at verses 20 through 21. Here's how you contend for the faith, or at least part of how you contend for the faith, Jude says. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So he says, now here's how you do it. You pray. You do these things. You keep yourself building up in the most holy faith. You keep waiting anxiously for Jesus Christ. And you keep yourselves in the love of God. And then he says, after this is how you do it, this is where you get your strength from in verse 24 and 25. This is how you do it. This is who you do it through. 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. Amen. So he tells you why you should do it at the beginning. Then he gives you examples of what's going on in the Old Testament, and, and the warnings about old and new. And then he says, this is how you do it, and this is who you do it through. And this is who is going to get you through that. Okay, Ty. There's the book of Jude. Again, it has a similar ring for me I mean, as Peter and the two Peters and the Johns. There are things we need to watch out for. We need to walk in God's love. We need to stay in God's love. Now, the next book is Revelation, which is, that's a rough book to get through sometimes. And there's so many different interpretations and so many things out there, I'm going to Skip all of that. I'm skipping all of the interpretations because when I look at at, uh, Revelation, no matter what exactly where you fall, I see this as as a constant theme in Revelation and a constant theme in 1 Peter through through Jude. That if you're in Christ, you have victory. That there is victory in Jesus Christ. And we could, we could go forever on, on what exactly uh, Revelation is saying. But I think the ultimate theme of Revelation for me is victory. 
for the Christian. If you hold on, if you're faithful to the end, faithful to death, yes. If you're faithful in Christ, God is not going to disown you. God is going to fulfill his promises. And no matter what happens on the earth, you're safe in heaven. No matter what happens to you, no matter whether, whether some Roman emperor takes your head or sends you to the lions, or today somebody takes your head. If you're secure in Christ, then you're secure, period. No questions, no ifs, no ands, no buts. And for me, besides all the other things in Revelation, the ultimate theme of that book for me is absolute and utter victory in Christ. Which is exactly what First Peter, Second Peter, all of these others are saying too, that you have to hold on to the head. You can't be uh, dissuaded by, by false teachers because that's not the truth. You can't... You have to walk in love because that is the truth. You have to hold on to Jesus Christ. No matter what. No matter what Satan throws at you. No matter what your family throws at you. No matter what the world throws at you. You hold on to Christ. Okay. Now that doesn't fill up all the boxes there. But that brings us to the end of the Bible. To Revelation. Now. Go ahead and erase that since we're... Since we're done there. I want to share with you the end of the sermon for me. And the beginning of the next series all at once. Because I think I've, I've got them so that they dovetail, I hope, into a nice transition. Because of, of what I'm thinking here. I, well, let, let me just just say it. I want, I want to... I want to, I want to have you shift your mind totally to the idea of worship. Just worship. Okay? And the way sometimes I've viewed worship and maybe we view worship. We've talked a lot about worship. In fact, we got Wednesday night class about worship. And I, sometimes we get very routine in our, in our worship. We get into comfortable positions. Not necessarily bad positions, but very comfortable because let, let, me, let me say a few things. And like this morning when I started off with my sermon series title, you filled in the blank for me. I want you to fill in these blanks for me, okay? This time I want you to do it. I'm not trapping you. <laughs> these Church of Christ prayers that you probably have heard if you've been around for a while. Fill, fill this one in. Guide, guard, and... I want to pray for the preacher to have a ready... May we take the Lord's Supper in a... Worthy manner. There's absolutely nothing wrong with any of those words, right? But they're but they're formulaic, and we and I've said them. Maybe you said them, and we get kind of routinely in in the habit of saying them. And when we hear them, we all know what we're saying. We get into this comfortable position of well, that's good to say, and that's good to to hear. We're doing things the right way. We're 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 dotting our eyes and we're crossing our t's. After all, that's what this is, right? This is where we come to worship God. This is where we come. For our worship service to God. And if we've got our eyes crossed and our T's dotted, then we're good. <laughs> or the other way around. If we got those things, if we do these things right, then God's looking down and he's smiling on us and he's and he's he's watching our, our services and he's saying, Oh yes, that's an acceptable aroma to me. Right? I I want you to think about it differently for a second. That that perhaps we're looking at things the wrong way, just, just a little bit. 
And I, I don't want you to get me wrong, because there are obviously right ways and wrong ways to do things. But sometimes I think we get so focused on dotting our I's and crossing our T's that we miss the heart of worship. We miss the heart of, of this service. We miss the heart of, of everything. I don't, I, I don't want to look at worship service as God looking at me. In fact, I don't think, I know he watches us. But I don't think we're the audience Sunday mornings. The audience should be God. We should be watching him. And as a, as a Christian, that's, that's our audience all the time. God is the audience because he's the one that's moving powerfully. He's the one that is doing all of these things in our lives. It's not us that he's, he's watching us. Don't get me wrong, right? But he, we are not the audience. We're not the ones moving powerfully. He is. We are moving powerfully through him. But he is the one we are watching. So when, when I'm talking about worship, I'm talking about sitting here and watching God. Watching him move masterfully and magically, magic, mas- not magically, that's a bad word to use, right? Masterfully and majestically, that's the word I want, majestically, moving. Not me, but God himself. I'm the audience. God is on the stage. Jesus came to serve and not be served, right? Jesus is the host. God is the host of us. We don't need to invite God here. We don't need to invite a portion of His Spirit to fall on us or anything like that. God is already here. We're watching Him. The Psalms in Psalm 95 said, Let us come before Him. He's the one that we're coming before. He's not coming before us. We are coming before Him. Psalm 100 says, Come before Him with joyful songs. Enter His gates with thanksgiving. He's established those gates. I've had nothing to do with those gates. He did them. I'm coming to Him. He's the one who's done all the work. It's, about, it's just like that Lord's Supper. He's already blessed the bread. He's already blessed the body. We are remembering those things. I am the audience watching God here. We're the audience watching God. I'm watching Him through my faith. I'm watching Him move powerfully. Hebrews chapter 11. I want to read you the last part of Hebrews 11, verses 39 through 40. After it gets done describing these heroes of faith, it says, And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. These all lived in faith. They had a faith-filled life. They were watching God. They were commended for their faith. God gave them their the salvation, but... The promise that, was, that they were waiting for did not come yet because that promise was Christ. The promise did not come yet. God is going to unite all of us together in that same faith. So when you get to verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run the race that is set before us. And what are the next words of that, that next verse? Fill in the blank for me. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Our eyes are on him constantly. Our eyes are on the the author and perfecter of our faith, we are watching Him. 
we are praising Him. He's not so much checking the box and, and making sure Robert dotted every I and crossed every T in worship service this morning. Although he, 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 know, he is concerned about the matters of my heart, and he knows if I did. But I think my mind should be focused on him, not me, making sure I get everything right. But focused on him. Focused on the author and perfecter of my faith. In worship, I think that's, that's where I need to be. Now, how does that translate to what we just talked about? I think it's a similar principle in reading his word. I don't, I don't see my God up there saying, Robert, you have not read your word today. I'm going to check that box. Are you, are you reading your word today? Well, I'm checking that box. God knows if I'm reading his word or not. Yes. But again, where is my focus? Am I, am I so focused that I got to do this and this and this to get my, to, to please God? Or am I looking at God and watching him move powerfully in my life? And by doing that, the only way I can stay connected with him, one of the biggest ways I stay connected with him is reading this word. This word is what connects me to his moving powerfully throughout history. Without this, how do I know what happened in Genesis? How do I know what happened in Exodus? And when I read 1 Peter, how will I know what, he's re- what is he referring to about this, this exodus of people? Well, I don't understand it because I'm not in the word. This, this, this idea of me watching God throughout my life, not just in worship this morning, but every single day, my eyes are fixed on the author and perfecter of faith. If my eyes are fixed on him, then I have to have my eyes fixed on his word. And I have to be in his word. And I have to be reading his word. Because I won't know what he wants. I won't know who he is if I'm not reading what he sent to me. This is his love letter to us. This is him saying, look, this is who I am. I want you to pay attention to this. I want you to read this. And when you're reading this, your eyes are on me. And that'll take a lot of pressure off of me, I think, in terms of trying to keep up with my readings and hounding myself and thinking, God's watching me. He's, he's, he's watching me. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making it. I'm not making it. Uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm looking at the wrong thing. I need to stop looking at, at what I can do, and I need to start looking more at what he's doing and how he's working in my life. Just a, a mind shift for me to look more at him rather than me. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus, on his word. And that's why this next series, we're going to be fixing our eyes firmly on the author and perfecter of our faith. The creator, the sustainer, the one who died for us. Because if we can't figure out what he, who he is, then we can't figure out who we need to be. We've looked at his word from Genesis to Revelation, albeit a very brief look. And I've covered some things that I think are important, and you undoubtedly have things in each book that I'm sure you would think he should cover that, he should cover that. But that's the beauty of the Word. We'll be back through it again, won't we? And we'll be looking at it again. And we'll be seeing new things together again. Because our eyes are going to be focused on Him, the author and perfecter. Our eyes are going to be focused on Him in the Word. Our eyes are going to be focused on Him in worship. And we're going to keep him the center and focus of our life as Christians. Today, I, 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 I give this series to you. The series is done. And I hope in some way, shape, or form that you got something out of this series. 
I hope you got something out of it and this maybe caused you to read more or maybe caused you to, to think more about the overall theme of the Bible and how it all fits together. I hope that has done that for you today. And I hope it's helped you focus your eyes on Him, the one who gave us this message. And I hope to help keep your eyes focused on Him as we look at His Son even closer in these next coming weeks. Today the lesson is yours. If you're struggling with something, if you're hurting, we have this invitation song that we're going to be singing. And if you need to come forward and, and ask for prayers from your brothers and sisters, we'd love to pray with you. If you need to ask prayers and you don't want to come forward, remember on the back of that card there's room to write that down and let us know what you need prayers with. But if you need help this morning, if you need prayers, I'd encourage you to come forward or write those down as we stand and sing.